So, what would you little maniacs like to do first? Welcome to the Circuits of Time. It's season two. So find the nearest bra, place it on your head, and let's party on, dude. Hello, and we are back with a brand new episode of The Circuit of Time. I am JD, and my fellow douchebag, this episode is none other than... Jeff Dog. Hello, Jeff Dog. It's episode two of season two, and I must say, Jeff, I really have been looking forward to this episode. It's a quintessential 80s movie in in many ways, Um, but we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to head downtown uh, with a film you may recognise from the following sound. Jeff Dog, please reveal the movie that we will be discussing. Well, there's not going to be any trouble here tonight, JD, but our film for this episode is Big Trouble in Little China. There might be trouble. We don't know how things are going to go. You know how these things work out, Jeff. Well, everybody could be Kung Fu fighting. Fast as lightning. Oh, oh you're on fire already. Let's get, let's get, let's get stuck in. Um, Jeff, I've got so many great memories of this film, and it's one I've watched when I was really young, the late 80s. It always seemed to be on TV a lot over here in the UK. It was, uh, uh, to me, I always feel like it was on in and around Christmas time, you know, the holiday period. It was always that film that would pop up in the TV guides that you'd put a circle around. In fact, I can still vividly remember the trailer when uh, Jack and Wang were both uh, waiting for the incoming car in the car park and they, they dive out the way. It's it's just so vivid and etched in my mind. It really was a, a treat for the senses, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I don't want to jump ahead too far into any sort of trivia that you may have, JD, but uh, did you know <laughs> that the, the scene where they jump out the way of the car was actually filmed in reverse? I did. I did read that. I was actually astounded. It doesn't take away from the magic of the film. It, it actually makes me admire the scene a bit more because, you know, you would have never have guessed, here we are, what? 35 years or whatever it is on and that was news to me so it just goes to show how well you know the cinematography was and the editing of the film but um let's just let's kick on tell us a few facts about big trouble in little china a few factoids about the movie so big trouble in little china is from 1986 a great year if i do say so myself jd it was the year I was born in, but it was also a great year for films on top of that momentous event that happened in June of that year. Uh, some films we had from that year, Top Gun, Blue Velvet, Stand By Me, Crocodile Dundee, Three Amigos, Flight of the Navigator, Short Circuit, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and of course, none other than Howard the Duck. Oh, wow. I, I, I just love this decade, Chris. I just love it. Well, it was written by a chap called Gary Goldman. Now, you might not have heard of him because it was his first film. He didn't really do much, to be fair. He did write Total Recall and Navy Seals later on, um, and some of the films which are lesser known. 
but it was directed by someone who's very famous, the great John Carpenter, known previously for Halloween, They Live, The Thing, uh, and Escape from New York. Less said about Escape from LA, the better. And it stars Kurt Russell. It stars a very young, even pre-mannequin Kim Cattrall, and definitely pre-sex in the city Kim Cattrall. It also starred James Hong, that legend of Chinese-American cinema. The guy from Wayne's World 2. Yes, I believe he was Cassandra's dad in that film. Didn't he have balls made of metal? I think it was the metallic ball bag. (laughs) (laughs) Very memorable fight scene at the start. But anyway, this film uh, was filmed on a budget of about $20 million. Now, normally we talk about exponential growth in these films, but it actually only took $11 million at the box office in America, from what I've read. Do you know, just from hearing those facts that you've just reeled off there's two things i quickly want to touch upon before we get stuck into the film and one of them is of course the director uh, john carpenter and just when you reel off those films you know the thing they live big trouble in little china the thing the thing that really screams out to me is originality the these were films that we'd not seen anything of the like certainly over here in 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 the west in 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 england and, and in the states um and it's just a shame because Big Trouble in Little China really was kind of like the end of an era where he turned away, didn't he, from some of these big budget productions. And and, and I think he went a bit more independent, largely in part because it, it, it flopped. But I think he had uh, a lot to say about that, didn't he? And, and, and how the studios, he didn't think uh, really backed the project. Of course, John Carpenter is, I know it sounds a bit of an over overstatement, but he, he's a visionary and he's definitely an auteur. And he's somebody who's got a, an idea of, uh, what the end product's going to look like before he's even made it. He's constructed it in his head. But of course, uh, that idealism and the artistic desire or, or the vision has to has to always come, come crashing against the, the, the turgid wall of budgets and um, production companies who seemingly know nothing about uh, craft and yet everything about the bottom line, which is which is a shame. And I guess if we're in this period now of uh, golden age of television and Netflix and things like that, these kinds of things aren't so prevalent nowadays. I'm sure eventually it'll come back to that. However, it just seems like there's more scope for things in this age now. And perhaps, you know, John Carpenter could have been a lot more successful with it if he took it, if he was if he was around now. Oh, he's around now. God, he's still with us. <laughs> no news flash there. But um, yeah, perhaps if he was if he was being at his most creative peak, shall we say, how different things could have been. Yeah, you, you, you're not wrong. Um, and, and Big Trouble in Little China, I, I mean, I don't know what it is relative in terms of the, the other films at the time, but it's such an impressive uh, display. And, and I, I obviously refer to some of the special effects and the way that film was shot. I mean, there are some scenes in that film that would look great even today. In a, in a film that was made 2021. I mean, that's how good some of those effects, uh, and obviously we can always look back to the thing and and we know how people still think of that film. Is this a John Carpenter thing or is he just luckily working on these projects that just bring out the best in people? Is it the, the subject matter that brings out the best in, I suppose, in the special effects? Or do we think this is the mind of John Carpenter and what he wants from his films? I think when you've got somebody, as I said, with that vision 
for what things look like. They put they pour the heart and soul in it. Now that's not to say that anyone who makes a film and it's not that great isn't doing that. You know, I'm sure there have been plenty of projects where people have worked all the hours God sends into it, and and it's just not been the way any anyone expected to. But I think when you've got somebody leading from the front and and sharing that vision with absolutely everybody at teams uh, throughout the entire movie making process, then that is what is ultimately shows on the camera. And you see that, you know, once in a generation, you get somebody like a John Carpenter or you get David Lynch um, or you get a, a Jim Cameron. They, 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 they have this passion and it comes across because I've seen this with those, all those directors, including John Carpenter, when you see those uh, making of uh, clips sometimes when somebody stood around on set with the film camera and you just see how busy the director is. He's, he's looking at everything. He's checking every single frame. He's looking at how it's shot and, and checking out absolutely everything. And, you know, strong leadership and a, and a strong idea of where, where they're coming from, from the, the writing stage right through. And also in, you mentioned the, the look, the cinematographer, I'm sorry, I can't recall his name off the top of my head, but John Carpenter had worked with them a few times. They hadn't really got along, apparently, on previous films, and they'd fallen out. Um, but when they came together on this film, uh, again, they shared that vision, and it just looks great on, on camera. You mentioned how it looks, uh, some of the scenes look good now. The How do I put this? If you watch an old trailer on, say, YouTube, there's a look to it, and it looks like a, a darkened kind of look, Like, um, and I guess that's what, the, what it would have looked like at the time. But when we see them now on DVD and Blu-ray, the quality is, is is much improved. But I think the version I was watching recently um, for research was a much more modern version. But everything looked great still. And the effects, wow. I mean, we talked about Ghostbusters just made a couple of years before, and that hasn't really aged very well. But the, the effects in this are fantastic and have aged well. I mean, some of the, the, the fight scenes and the flying around on ropes and things like that were excellent. This was all before... Um, digital effects. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to get the same, I suppose, credit that something like The Thing does or Terminator 2. But I, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China really was a, a real beacon of, spe- of special effects and sound. And I go back to what I said just at the beginning. It was a real treat for the senses. And, and obviously, we can talk about the music as well, um, which is, again, just it, it's a character in itself. But without further delay, come on, Jaff. What is Big Trouble in Little China all about? Hey, dirtbags. It's time for the movie review. So Jack Burton, our hero played by Kurt Russell, helps his friend Wang Chi rescue Wang's green-eyed fiance from bandits in San Francisco's Chinatown. You know what those bandits of San Francisco's Chinatown are like, JD? They just they just, they just, just get you. Well, they go into the mysterious underworld beneath Chinatown, where they face an ancient sorcerer named Lopan. And now this guy just happens to need a woman with green eyes to marry him in order to release him from a thousands-year-old case. And so our adventure takes us through these back streets and in this strange, unusual underworld to rescue the woman or women with the green eyes from Mr. Lopan and the heroes. Well, you just know what's going to happen. They're going to save the day. 
Yeah, well, uh, Mr. Lopan, as we said, or David. I mean, it's, it's an unusual <laughs> name for a sorcerer, isn't it? Lopan, yeah, I can get, but David, that's a strange one. But uh, maybe it was just there to, to fit him in with modern society. Maybe he changes his name through the centuries. That's but, that's a good uh, point, that, actually. I didn't think of that. Yeah, it's, it, it was something I've always thought. It just seems to be such a mishmash. But here we are, the start of another 80s movie. I feel like I could almost repeat this introduction praise that we always seem to dish out. I'm going to roll it out again for this film. Big Trouble in Little China has got one of the best openings to an 80s film I think I've ever seen. And yet so simple. And here we have the introduction, the first character we see. Um, is Egg Shen. The setting, it's a, it's a shadowy room. You have this eerie music um, and, and he's being questioned, isn't he, on the whereabouts of a of a Jack Burton. So, I mean, straight away we get the um, the nod from the film that we're going to be looking back retrospectively. This is almost like an Egg Shen, maybe telling a lawyer or something. I assume this is something to do with an insurance about the, the, the building, uh, which we'll get to. But quick thoughts on that opening scene. And of course, the special effects. Yeah, it tempts us into the the, the film quite nicely, doesn't it? Uh, Egg Shen, Egg Shen is is it Shen? Egg Egg Shen. Egg, Egg Shen. Yeah, his brother Egg Shell uh, is uh, uh, <laughs> is um, um, is played by Victor Wong, who I recognise. Uh, some viewers may recognise from uh, the critically acclaimed classic Three Ninjas High Noon on Mega Mountain. As the you mean uh, Rocky Rocky loves Emily. <laughs> and uh and the the, the lawyer guy if, if for the real geeks out there is is played by well, i think deep throat from the first series of the x-files but yeah it, it is it's tempting us in to say look something's happened here um and he's going into he's going to going to tell it in a retrospective sort of way just thinking off the top of my head jd do we see a scene to dovetail that first scene at the end of the film what well, oh, is it just uh, then with I, the, the, the heroes? Do you see where I'm coming I, from? I, I think it, the, the scene, because I only watched it last night just to refresh my memory, but obviously the scene at the end is is the, the pork chop express. That's right. Uh, just driving off. Um, and, and you see there's like a creature, isn't there? A spoiler alert. There's something, <laughs> something in the back of the pork chop express. But it, it brings us on nicely, really, to the pork chop express because that is the follow-up scene to that little uh, mini introduction by Egg Shen. And uh, I mean, the truck is a character in itself. And in, in a weird way, for the majority of the film, it is Jack Burton's goal to retrieve the truck that he will eventually uh, leave, leave um, lose, sorry, should I say, in the opening acts. Yeah, the, 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 the truck is a character in itself, as you say, Poor Chop Express. And it also gives the opportunity for our main character to be introduced and it's for us to learn a little bit about him because he's talking on a CB radio. So he's he's putting information out there about himself and sort of like his philosophy on life. And we learn quite a bit about this character just in just in that opening scene before he even speaks to anyone. So that's a nice little plot, plot device that to use that for um, sort of... It, it gives our character the chance to speak their mind. Whereas in a novel, you know, you can have that internal monologue in the written word, but you can't really have that in a film unless someone's narrating the story, um, which probably wouldn't suit this story. But yeah, then we have all those shots of uh, the Chinatown at night in San Francisco. And I think, so you're speaking of inanimate objects that are characters, I, I think the city is a, 
is is taking on a life of its own as well. That we know we're going into a world here that's uh, um, something dark and and different, and also because it's an immigrant community, um, it's separate perhaps. So uh, the rules might not necessarily be the same as what they would be for in the mainstream world. So so anything can happen. No, I'm with you totally, and and I like what you said about Jack Burton and how well he was introduced because straight away, just in those opening lines, you can see that he's a cocky son of a bitch. Uh, there's a bit of bravado. Um, he's almost an oaf, isn't he? And, and obviously that will become more apparent as the film goes on. But no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, we soon meet um, a character who will soon become his counterpart for a large part of the movie, uh, which uh, you said was uh, Wang Chi, played by uh, Dennis Dunn. And they're doing the, the gambling, aren't they? I, I can't recall what they were origi- originally gambling for. Do you recall? Money? It, oh, it's cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's cash. Uh, I could. I, I was trying to work out what the actual game was they were playing. It's some sort of uh, dice game. And at first, if it's only for the fact that Wang Chi, yeah, Wang Chi's got a Wang Chi's got a smile on his face that we know that these two guys know one another. You know, it's not like he's um, the complete strangers. And uh, and also as well, there are a couple of establishing shots there when we see um, uh, Jack go into the different food stalls and talking to the people there. So it's also implying as well that we that he's known in this community and he's not a stranger. He's not an outsider. He's known to the people there, and obviously his friend is Wang Chi. It was an interesting, you know, scene because Jack obviously wins this game, uh, dominoes, whatever it is, the playing. And Wang offers uh, the, the option of doubling his money if he can chop the top off a bottle. And uh, we see Jack try and give him another bottle. It, it's funny because I think had you not seen that film before, you would definitely think Wang would do it. But it doesn't happen. It, uh, Jack catches this bottle, which will be a nice bit of foreshadowing uh, for later in the movie. Uh, he may be an oaf, but there's something there about this guy. And I think maybe that was a quick nod by the movie makers as to this character's not as it seems. There's a bit more to him than you might think. Yeah, and 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 also perhaps they're trying to uh, lure us in into thinking that. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this in in terms of characters later. But lure us into the fact that, or the um, the assumption that Jack is the all American hero. He's the the main man, and he yeah he is a hero in in many ways. But in actual fact, it's it's the other characters, the, the, the Chinese American characters, who often turn to, out to be much more stronger in in the moment than Jack. So in a way, this Wang Chi is immediately being set up as the sort of comedy sidekick to to our hero. But as we learn throughout the film, actually, no, it's the other way around. So it was a nice little bait and switch there, I think, going on. It was, um, but of course, Wang uh, does in fact lose. Uh, doesn't have the money on his person. And, and of course, this is how Jack and Wang, they, well, their journey becomes entwined, doesn't it, from this point on. Uh, they end up going to the airport to pick up uh, Wang's fiance Miao Yin. And then uh, this is the point in the movie, isn't it, where things go awry. Um, there's a failed abduction, isn't there? We see the Lords of Death, who are a San Francisco um, Chinese gang. We don't know about them, but I think is it mentioned at that point that they are the Lords of Death? I don't know who it is that says it. I think it might be, um, I don't know if it's Wang or perhaps Kim Cattrall's character. 
it, it's it's Kim Cattrall's character. Uh, Jack says, who are they? And, and she says, the Lords of Death, punks from, from Chinatown. Uh, and that's how it introduced them. And one of them's got this... <laughs> It's a thing in 80s films of like weird sunglasses on, like this weird visor type white mask. Bizarre. It's like something you'd expect to see in Hill Valley 2015. <laughs> <laughs> but what I love about this scene as well is not just, you know, what's going on. There's a real sense of agency. You know, you can see these girls um, leaving the or coming back into the airport. They've just uh, exited the flight and you have this gang. And of course, you've got Gracie, who we don't know, really know who she is at this moment. And then you've got Wang and Jack. So there's a lot of movement going on and a lot of quick shots from character to character. We don't know what's going on. But on top of that, you've got the great bit of music and it's like a, a fast beats uh, followed by this almost like a synth sound. I wouldn't know how to describe it. I mean, you're mu- more musical than me, but it, it's so well done, isn't it? It just adds to the atmosphere. John Carpenter was known for doing the the music on his own films and taking on writing credit for the music. And he often used uh, synths and experimented with synths. You know, people often remember the um, the, the Michael Myers theme from Halloween uh, with, you know, the, forgive me for the tune, but, you know, dun, 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 dun. right, so I think that was on a synth. But a lot of the tension in that film from its music isn't necessarily from the main theme. There's... Uh, if you think of some of the shots where Laurie is being chased around, um, some of the music is just a simple dun, da dun, dun, da dun. I think it's the bit where he comes out through the cupboard and smashes the door. I mean, that the the tension and the the the, the things that he can do with a um, with this, with a small number of notes. Plus, he's a, but he's also got a great ear for a tune because. I can also think now off the top of my head, I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about, but the tune from uh, Escape from New York. Uh, in this scene, in the airport scene, I was reminded of another film, actually, from, I think, 1986 or 1985, actually, Commando, where there is a similar sort of airport uh, or abduction scene. So much so that I actually, when you in the parking lot where we see the car zooming out, I think, I might be wrong here, but it, it looks terribly familiar. It actually looks like the same, we call it a car park or parking lot. It looks like the same one from Terminator 2 as well in the, what's supposed to be the... The, the, shopping, the shopping mall. The shopping mall uh, shopping mall in Commando or the shopping mall in Terminator 2. In fact, I think they were the, both the same place, actually. Um, or even the, the hospital as well, car park too, where there's a little bit of a chase scene as well. You know, the kind of like grey... Uh, open space type, yeah. It's probably it's probably the same place that's been in goodness knows how many films. But in this scene, you've got uh, I think it's Gracie's uh, friend. I don't know if she's a fellow journalist or just an old friend, but she's the target of these Lords of Death. This is where Jack Burton intervenes, and obviously we see a little bit more about this character. He he stands for something. He doesn't want to see these guys get away with what whatever they're trying to attempt to do. So it gives us a little bit of as a clue as this is a good guy, Jack Scott a good heart, good intentions. Yeah, he says, uh, son of a bitch must pay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then, and then they're chasing them down then in the truck. Now, unfortunately for um, Miao Yin, she's kind of the substitute, if you like. She's almost like the second choice because the failed abduction of this girl, the, the one who they target, doesn't go to plan. And I think you hear one of them shout in the background, get that one. And that is, of course, Miao Yin, uh, which leads, of course, then to uh, a bit of a chase, doesn't it? into the, the city centre of, of San Francisco, which is where we 
meet Egg Shen, who's working as a as a tour guide or a tour bus operator or something like that. It is. It, it's. I love that scene because it it shows such a different side of Egg Shen. Just this happy guy, proud of his town, proud of the Asian community within it. Uh, it it's so well done, and 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 of course he's unfortunately for Egg, he's kind of embroiled or he's caught up in the midst of this uh, chase between uh, Jack Wang and the Lords of Death. Um, I think at one point they almost run him off the road, don't they, with all his, uh, all the fellow tourists? They do, and that leads to a, uh, a classic shot of, of course, that truck then has to veer off into a bunch of boxes at the side of the road that <laughs> explode. <laughs> Happens every film. But I, I'm not quite sure how they end up in this back street or this alley. Um, I don't know if the Lords of Death have, 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 have took a detour or a shortcut, and I can't remember if they've just lost track of them. But Jack and Wang end up in this back street of Chinatown. And I think we really ought to give the next 10, 15 minutes a bit of focus because I don't know if I can think off the top of my head where there's a 10-minute scene in any of the 80s films that we have discussed or are likely to. That just gives us so much. I mean, I don't even know where to start. You see an old man, don't you, at the start of when they enter this alley or back street, you see an old man, first and foremost. He has a hat and some facial hair. Uh, now, we don't know it at the time, but it is, in fact, Lopan. Uh, he's there. He's just roaming about the streets. We don't know why. We don't know his intentions, but it is Lopan. And they uh, run into uh, a funeral. It's a funeral of the uh, the Shang Sings, one of the fighting tongues of China, Chinatown. And I think Wang says, doesn't he, that these are good guys. Yeah. And then you'd have a, you know, a bit of dialogue and... Um, I think we see then the, the cleaver guy walks out from the, the, this fog, this doorway, uh, the Wing Kongs, I think I'm right there, who wear the red. Uh, the, that, I think that's how we differentiate them, isn't it? It's the yellows and the reds. And it's such, I don't know if this is something we can credit to John Carpenter because it's so crazy, some of the, the choices, the creative choices that they made. You see this guy, don't you? A bald guy, one of the uh, Wing Kongs come out. And you expect, you know, it sounds awfully, um, almost stereotypical. And I hope it doesn't come across that way. But you expect them to come out with either these, you know, sticks or swords. But he comes out with these, like, magnums. <laughs> it's just so, it's such a curveball moment, isn't it? And it's just this mix of martial arts, uh, gunfire, uh, and other weaponry. It, it's like an America, Americanized nod to martial arts, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's uh, it's obviously made with a love of martial art films. I think the guy who choreographed it was, um, he was someone who worked with or for the the Hong Kong police or something like that um, as the martial arts guy. So you know, it was it was very carefully put together. I just think was this going to happen no matter what? Like was this it was just happening down and back alleyway? They just happened to walk into it, and you got all these guys coming round in red and in yellow and in white and all the different outfits and things like that. Um, the guy with the pale handle revolvers <laughs> as well, but there's also a fellow who pops up too. He's got he's got a bald head on top and long straggly hair with a mustache. I've seen him in I've seen him in something. Maybe his head gets split in two, or he gets shot in the forehead. I can't think what it is though. I was trying to find the actor, but I couldn't find him. Do you know a bit more about that? I know ex- I know exactly who you mean. He's not. It's not um, Genghis Khan from Bill and Ted, is it? It could well be. <laughs> Check that one out. 
he's the guy that comes out with the cleavers, isn't he? I think he's got like these butcher's cleavers. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you why that scene is so good. Because we, the audience, we are essentially Jack Burton and Wang. We're the spectators. We're just sitting caught up in the midst of this, uh, what will soon be like a, almost a war in the middle of this back street. It's so well shot because here we are in this really narrow passage. Uh, it's dark. It, it, it's filthy. And and they haven't forgotten the importance of music as well. We have this burst of uh, sound, and, like, drums and percussion, and just these like little noises that just build the tension. It's it's so well shot. They've really took great care in in how they want to show this scene, and it really works. And it culminates, of course, in this Chinese standoff. I think Wang calls it. And I love this because you talked earlier on about the cinematography. And when I think of cinematography and, and Big Trouble in Little China, yes, I think of Jack and Wang jumping out the way of this car in the car park. But I also think of the shot where the Shang Sings start running towards the Wing Kongs and you get this cut back and forth of the two gangs running towards the camera. And it's so good because you just see these animated faces and they're all like waving their arms with this weaponry. I am in absolute glee watching this scene. I don't know about you. Yeah, for a, for a, for a scene that's taking place down down a back alleyway, it feels like a big battle. You know, there's the kind of it's shot in the way that you'd see maybe a big battle scene and say like a Braveheart or something where it's an open space where the battle's taking place. Whereas this is meant to be a back alleyway, and yet you, you never lose a a sense of of place. I think what also helps as well is the fact that. And again, you know, to, to organise all these shots in a way that makes sense must have taken so much work. We just take it for granted, we see it, but an audience can get lost in a big battle scene. The truck is, in, in a way, is like the, the, the hook, the, the anchor that keeps us a sense of place and space and what's going on. I'm glad you mentioned the, the shots in particular. Um, again, I saw this on the making of, um, it, was, it, it was a guy with a steady cam uh, strapped to a harness just running down the street with a camera while they're all chasing. Obviously, they did it both ways and cut it together. But yeah, I mean, they, they are they are going into battle. They're going for it. And then when they clash, you know, then you see, like in any battle film, you see you, you see the wider battle and then you'll see like individuals. And there's loads of all like wacky, well choreographed fighting going on with all like moves and hand movements, people getting smashed through windows and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, fun scene to watch as well. It is. And, and I don't recall seeing... Any blood, I mean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall seeing any blood, but you still feel that raw violence, the way it's, you know, especially when they do these close-ups and you see, like, the shots and, you know, the kicks to the, the inner legs. And I think someone breaks an arm, don't they, at one point. But um, it, it's really good. And and just when you think that scene can't get any good, any better than what it has, boom, we <laughs> have the introduction of the three storms. This is why I said about five minutes ago, never has a film in this decade, and you know me and you, we love it, but in 10 minutes spell just completely took me by surprise with every little creative choice. And here we have the three storms and I think thunder, rain, uh, lightning. Quick thoughts on the appearance of these characters. Visually, it's an, it's an incredibly um, striking, <laughs> like the lightning strike, look that they've got going on is... Uh, this was going to be something from my little uh, did you know section, but the visual style, if you've seen a film called Baby Cart at the River Sticks, uh, the kind of film that Tarantino would pinch for uh, Kill Bill, 
you know the ones where like someone gets uh, cut with the samurai sword and blood would gush out for you know gallons and gallons and stuff. But there's baddies in um, in those films called uh, who've got that that huge hat, like a, an exaggeration of a straw hat that looks like a massive basket on the head. That's where that looks taken from. What did you say the f- uh, film it was inspired on? What was the baby something? Well, there's there's a few of them. Um, one of them that I, I can was... remember is Baby Carter, the River Stick. So there's, it's just a, it's about a, a little boy and a, and, a, and his dad who's a samurai. And I think the mum got killed in one of the films. And then he they wander around. You know, he's got he's in the he's in the push chair, which I think's got blades built into the wheels that spin round. I remember it very well. In fact, I think we we mentioned this on previous episodes, but. Here in the UK, we had a channel called Bravo. Uh, I don't know if that channel's still going, in fact. But I always remember about 11 o'clock at night, they always used to put these wacky, <laughs> weird, macabre films on. And one of them, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was called Shogun Assassin. Um, and I'm almost, maybe I'm wrong, but I do recall seeing one of these films with this old man um, walking around with this baby in a cart. And I think the baby had like a pea shooter, but it had like little mini like knives in it. Uh, <laughs> very violent, very bloodshed, but I can see why that might have uh, inspired the, these characters. But we said earlier on about how some of the special effects from uh, this film and how good they were. And I, I think the best example of the special effects in this film is the introduction of these three characters, especially when you see this. I don't know how you would describe it. It's almost like this... Uh, green, blue, mist. Uh, I wouldn't even know how to describe it, what it is, but it looks so um, slick and, and clean and, and just so well done and polished. It would look so... I mean, you, you could imagine that in 2021, couldn't you? Yeah, the the, the explosion and, and green is quite symbolic in this film. But that combined with the lightning effects pre-digital, it all looks great, you know? It, it works well on on camera. And I suppose we have to quickly say about uh, the weaponry. Uh, you have uh, Thunder, who has these blades. I think there's a name for these kind of blades. You might know it. Rain has these almost like hands on the end of sticks. Uh, and, and Lightning, I mean, Lightning steals the show, doesn't he? He has these like rotator blades. They look like they're attached. <laughs> Looks like it's attached to his ring finger <laughs> and his middle fingers. But I mean, even as a even as a kid, I can still remember being very intimidated by that weapon. And here I am, uh, late 30s now, uh, looking at this film. And that weapon still, to this day, packs a punch. <laughs> yeah, I think, do you know, the only thing, not like a little, slight little drawback about this film is that I think sometimes it mixes the cultures a little bit too much. Uh, you know, like, okay, yeah, Chinese. But, but I think they put, like, these are Japanese influences in here. These... I'm not sure. Maybe someone could dig deep enough and find these being used. But just a, a little tiny bit about the history in, in Japanese um, um, culture. There was a time the martial arts were developed because it was the peasants' way of, of striking up against the, the the government, which which was keeping them under under all kinds of strict rules. So they weren't allowed to keep weapons, for example. So they they had to improvise and make weapons out of uh, what they had. So, for example, nunchucker are uh, rice flails. So they would the things that they'd use working in the paddy fields, and there's all kinds of batons and all kinds of things that were used as uh, as tools for farming, which were which were adapted for for use as as weaponry. 
So I think that's where they've been developed from. The, the fork things on the on the ring fingers. I think they might have been completely made up for the film. But anyway, uh, join us next time for our uh, history of the, the martial martial times in Japan. <laughs> listen, I, I I can't speak for people who who do listen to this show, but I mean, I always enjoy the history lesson. So as always, Jeff, you know, thank you. This scene, we actually see, I think, the Shang Tsings try and shoot the um, three storms and the bullets have no effect. I mean, we can kind of guess by the fact that they came in in, in a burst of cloud and lightning that there was something mystical about them. But the fact that bullets had no effect, I mean, who are these guys? We, we don't know, do we? We don't know what their presence is at this point. No, we just know that they've got these massive hats on their heads and... Uh... Jack tries to run them over with the truck, actually, but they all kind of step out of the way, don't they? And then one of them flies up over the top of the truck. But Jack doesn't have a second to even think about that before. Of course, then we see this, another new character who's all dolled up with a big hat on and a cape and like a really white face. Uh, He's sort of like beckoning him to come at him. But then maybe, JD, you want to say about what happens next? Yeah, I mean, we'll quickly touch upon the fact that he mows this character down. I mean, just a quick word on how visually striking he is. Um, I'm not not quite sure of the influence of of his dress style. It's clearly of Asian origin. And he has this, you know, this beard and this moustache. Looks a bit eerily similar to the the character that we see when they first enter the alley, albeit in, in a different attire, a different guise. But he has this white face paint and... Um, we, we presume that he's been crushed by this truck, uh, but when Jack and Wang obviously get out of the truck, uh, he, he's alive. And not only is that he alive, but he does this face. Um, and, and I've got to give uh, James Hong a lot of credit because he has this ability to really frighten you with, with his facial features. And he really does in this scene. And, and, and yes, the special effects help, but he, he fires these lights from his eyes and his mouth. Uh, which temporarily blind Jack Dunkley, but very frightening, frightening guy. Yeah, it's and it's that's that shot of the the light coming out is scary in a, in a Ghostbusters kind of way. The, the, the visual effects, it's uh, it's quite frightening actually. Um, but lo and behold, Jack's blinded for a second until until Wang dips his hand in a puddle and just splashes him in the face. <laughs> yeah, it didn't look the most hygienic of puddles, did it? No, no. I'd sooner stay, stay temporarily blinded. <laughs> but the question is as well, how did how did he know that that would wear? You know, there must be sort of legends about this guy. Well, I think that's something that we'll, we'll find out uh, a little bit further into the film, because I did notice that there was an almost, uh, some of these characters were in the know. Uh, they had an, an idea of who that was and some of the powers that they hold and some of the mythology. Um, but before long, I think, I mean, Jack loses his truck. This is the point when his truck, he, he doesn't necessarily lose it. He flees initially, doesn't he? Uh, and it, it's seized upon by the um, the gang or, or, or the, the Lords of Death, is it, that take the truck, is it, in the end? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, just a note, um, just before we do move on, actually, um, when, when we mentioned then about uh, the water in the ice, that's a really long tracking shot, actually down one alley and then down another. And as they get down the other alley before they walk off, there's fighting going on. The three, um, the three, what are the names again? Thunder and three that. Storm. Three Storm. They're fighting down, down an alleyway. But I just thought it was an interesting take because there was no no cut in that at all. It was just one whole scene. But yeah, um, his truck, he, he's no longer got his truck, put it that way. 
No, do you know what? I'm going to quickly go back to what you've just said because I also picked up on that. Um, it was almost as if, even though the camera was following Jack and Wang, those other people in the alley were told to continue filming and acting um, and, and, and wait for the camera to come back. So well done. And it just felt so real, didn't it? That it made the scene so much grander. Like it, it felt like all of a sudden this wide, this narrow alley just kind of overlaps then into these other streets. It just gives that sense of, of wow, doesn't it, about the whole thing. But we are soon in the uh, Dragon of the Black Pool, which is a, a Cantonese cuisine uh, slash restaurant. Uh, and, and I think this is a really clever choice by the filmmakers because it's a chance to take a breath. We've just had an unbelievably uh, great 10 minutes and and, and this is a, a, a quiet scene, uh, a scene of exposition almost where we, we can find out a little bit more. Uh, and it's a chance for the, the directors and writers to just give us that extra layers of information because that last 20 minutes, I mean, we can rave over it. We could we could spend half an hour just talking about that scene. But we find out, don't we, that we've said the Lords of Death have stolen Jack's truck. Uh, I think we get an introduction to this maitre d', uh, Eddie, Eddie Lee. Uh, he, he's an interesting guy who just pops up. And we also find out, I think, Gracie Law burst in, doesn't she? She's uh, played by Kim Cattrall. And all these characters seem to have little tidbits to add to the story. Um, we, we find out from Gracie that Miao Yin was taken to the White Tigers to be sold. Is she a reporter, does it say, Gracie? Uh, she does have a job. However, it's one of my questions for you later. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll stay there. But basically, she's obviously been given a lot of tip-offs or, or she's got leads. Uh, and, we, and we also learn that Lopan um, has spirit medium powers uh, and that his flesh and his bones are atomized and that he becomes a dream. At least that's according to Uncle Chew. So I thought that was a really good scene and it was a nice way of just kind of turning down that uh, pressure cooker after what we just witnessed. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a nice come down scene and uh, just a chance for us to just gather gather back our thoughts again because it is an action action packed film. By the way, we're only 26 minutes into the film at this point. And yet so much has happened, so much has gone on. I think we've mentioned this time and again. You know, we're, we're, we've just started watching the film practically and, and we're, we're sucked in. We know everything about what's going on and the and the, the story's being set up and you just don't seem to see that nowadays. The pacing's so much different in films. Yeah, I mean, you're invested in this film straight away, aren't you? And, and I don't know whether you can lay that at the feet of the story or just even the visuals. I mean, the visuals alone will will sell this film just in those opening 20, 25 minutes. But I think you're right. I think we get a real idea of what's going on quite quickly. Um, and, and the way they use these subplot characters, I suppose you could say, secondary characters to kind of um, sow the seeds and, and, and give us a little bit more background information around the lore and the mythology. Um, it just, it's, I mean, it's all for our benefit to the audience, but it, it really works. But the White Tiger, of course, um, which is a, it's a brothel, isn't it? I think Jack decides to uh, go undercover at the White Tiger. It's a really good scene. Um, and and he's, he's wearing this real dorky suit, uh, which, you, which I'll tell you a bit about later. We had a reference to that in some of our listener feedback. But he's specifically looking for a girl with green eyes, um, fresh off the boat, I think he calls it. Uh, I mean, in a way, he's given the game away because the lady in the front of house kind of goes back, doesn't she, to the room where Miao Yin's tied to the bed and 
he's overegged the pudding really as uh, Jack. Yeah, does um does the the madam of the brothel say something like Chinese girls don't come with green eyes? Yeah, I mean, is this the first point in the film where we've heard about the green eyes? Is this the first point in the film where this becomes uh, a, a plot device or a plot point? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not something that we know, you know, what it means at this point, but uh, is it true? I mean, that this is going to sound terribly ignorant, but is green eyes amongst the Chinese, is that a rare thing? Is that something that's looked upon with great endearment? I'm not sure. It could well be, actually. Mm. Um, but it doesn't seem to go to plan for Jack. Uh, the three storms uh, return, don't they? Uh, and, and Miao Yin's day goes from uh, bad to worse. Uh, she's abducted again, this time by, uh, I think it's rain. Um, and again, at this point, we're still unsure of the motive, aren't we? Well, we, well, she's tied up in a bed and we see this this green, again, green cloud sort of descend on the building and the, the building's roof caves in. Uh, flies off and you know the, the lightning comes down at which point uh the, the 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 three storms come in come into the building and jack actually sees them in the in the corridor yeah and it, it's it's great because i think the choices that were made by the, i don't know if it, again it's one of those we don't know whether to put this at the feet of the director or the writers or whatnot but this is followed by another um shot uh, or say shot another scene I think it's in Gracie Law's office it's another climb down and I think this film cleverly goes from those real um, highs to these subdued lows but they really take advantage of the lows it, it, they are the points in the film where the, the exposition really comes to the fore it, it, it's Gracie Law's office and uh, we have the Asian characters and, and we go back to what we said they are in the know we don't know how and why but we got to start getting this uh, information. Um, David Lopan, we actually start to find out a little bit more about him. I think Margot, um, who is uh, one of Gracie's uh, colleagues, uh, says that uh, David Lopan, and I'll quote this because I wrote this down, is the godfather of Little China, the chairman of the National Orient Bank, and owns the Wing Kong Import-Export Trading Company, but who's so reclusive that no one's laid eyes on him. Um, and that was nice because it just, again, gives us an idea of this. He's a powerful guy. He's got his hands tied in in, in these places of interest, um, but he's still a mystery. No one's laid eyes on him. I think Wong, doesn't he, wants to go to the Wing Kong Exchange because he thinks that's where the three storms have taken Miao Yin. Um, I mean, it, it's a guess, and it, it's obviously convenient, but it, it obviously is true that that's where she's being held. Yeah, um, Gracie uh, or, or Wang says, you know, that he's too scared to show his face. Uh, Lopan, Gracie's determined to to go to go and get her to make to ensure that her civil rights aren't violated. <laughs> but they're soon behind enemy lines, aren't they? Uh, Jack and Wang, the brave characters. I mean, they, they they don't certainly hold back as soon as they find out that there's a chance that Miao Yin is being held. I mean. There's no second guessing. They just go, don't they? Uh, but they are behind enemy lines at this Wing Kong exchange. And it, it, it's starting to feel like a, a bit of a double act now, isn't it, between Jack and Wang? We really see these two form that connection in these next 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I love how they just go into the building. They just wander in through the front door and they're like, no, no, don't get up. 
We're from the phone company. <laughs> and I'll tell you why that's so good, because I think we've all been in similar positions where we've seen someone come in to an area where probably they ought not to have been, but they've been so confident and, and, and well versed in what they say. You, you kind of do almost let it slide. Convenient again for the film, but it, it's really good. And this film doesn't forget the fact that it, it's also got elements of comedy and uh, Jack Burton, of course, is the, the comedic element. But it, it does throw, not it doesn't overegg the comedy. It just subtly places uh, jokes here and there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I, again, you, you've got to just suspend your disbelief and just go with it and just enjoy it and just accept some things for the way they are. Because if you try and rationalize everything. You'd never get anywhere with it, you know. Like as we said earlier, there's a puff of green smoke, and then these three guys with huge, huge baskets on the head <laughs> descend from the heavens. You just have to go with it. Meanwhile, uh, back at the uh, Dragon of the Black Pool, uh, we've got Uncle Chu and Egg Shen, uh, and they're also talking about uh, David Lopan. I think the briefing, uh, Gracie Lord, aren't they? But I think Egg Shen refers to Lopan as a ghost. Um, he, he plays at being a man. I thought that was a really unusual way of describing someone. Uh, again, it lends to the mystery. But can we get any more about who David Lopan is from the idea that he's a ghost? Something a bit different, something a bit other. And Exchange makes a reference to something about bringing chaos, order out of the chaos, and uh, something about storm clouds gathering. You know, so there's a sense of doom. But there's also a sense that these guys know a lot more than they're letting on. And they're much more well-informed than, than the characters or even us as the audience are at this point. Yeah, Egg Shen always seems to be um, uh, the optimist. No matter what's going on, he he always believes that the good will rise and, and, and win the day. Did you get that sense from him as well? Yeah, he's the, he's the, the master Yoda. <laughs> he really is. Back at the uh, Wing Kong Exchange, you have a scene, don't you, with Jack and Wang where they go in an elevator. Uh, and I will quickly make a, a quick comment on it because I remember seeing this as a child and being quite frightened of this. Number one, I never liked elevators as a kid, but this water starts to fill the elevator um, uh, to the point where it, it submerges them, doesn't it? Uh, and they're forced to open the elevator doors. And then we see these horrible dead bodies, you know, chained up, don't they, in the middle of the wall. I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, two things that you've got there mixed together, actually. One, elevators with closed, dark uh, spaces. But then you've also got the water as well. Combine those two things. They're quite terror terrifying things, whether you're a child or actually for adults as well. You know, I mean, the idea of being stuck somewhere for me is, is quite frightening in a small space and that you can't get out of. Um, but also water as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not very fond of uh, getting in water, uh, and certainly I wouldn't want to be swimming around water where there's lots of dead bodies in there. You, you don't know what's going to be in that water. Yeah. Well, at least that explains the body odor anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the uh, unfortunately for Jack and Wang, they are in fact captured uh, by the three storms. I think it is. Um, yeah. I think that they're tied up and. I think one of them has this weird red ball, which he uses to kind of hit Jack in the stomach. Again, it, I mean, there's not much to say about this other than the fact that it was just a weird thing to include in the movie. Great, great visual because, it was, it, you know, what is this thing? Um, 
And the film doesn't wait, waste any time trying to explain. It just lets you marvel in, in this weird uh, thing that they've chosen to inflict pain. Yeah, the balls looks like a, a bit like a, a CGI or something. I don't know how, they, how they've done it. But it is like a red... Um, like know, clown's nose. Yeah, like a clown's nose type ball. That's what it is. That's exactly what I was thinking it was. And then, yeah, it whacked, whacks them in the stomach. And then they're wheeled, wheeled off then in these sort of uh, rickety old fashioned type wheelchairs, aren't they? By the by the the, the three storms. Yes, and that leads us nicely into the uh, introduction, the formal introduction with David Lopin. And it, you know, it's it, it's a it's a bizarre scene because here we see David Lopin not as an as a old man in a, in an overcoat, um, dark hair, and or as the unusual sorcerer, but actually this frail, horrid, crippled old man in a wheelchair. Horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, he's got all this makeup, like old, old, old man's makeup on with all straggly, straggly hair and bald, slightly bald, well, very bald head. And he's he's saying things like there's lots of mysteries that, that aren't answered even in a, even in a, a short, a life as short as yours or something like that. Uh, he also makes reference to the fact that, um, you know, I'm not going to waste another 2,000 years on 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 something. Yeah, I made a little uh, note about what he does go on to say because he point blank lays out his motivation. Um, all the guessing stops. This is the point in the film where we actually know what's going on. He goes on to say that uh, this place is my tomb. I'm buried here. A young man, a king, a warrior is entombed in this old man's crippled body. And all I need is a woman, a special kind of woman with dragon green eyes to make me whole again, young again, so that I may rule the universe from beyond the grave. He, he's trying to appease a god. He, he actually refers to a god, doesn't he? I think he says the Qing Dai, uh, the god of the East. That's right. um, and he intends to marry uh, Miao Yin. Um, and, and now, obviously, the point of the movie where everything's laid on the table. Um, he wants a green-eyed wife. Uh, Wong wants his fiance. And Jack's still going on about his truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he's talking about all this mystical stuff as well and uh, satisfying the gods and things. And uh, Jack's, you know, again, brings him back down to earth, says something like 2,000 years and he couldn't even find a girl to meet the bill. <laughs> do, do you know what? As much as the scene is disturbing uh, and, and Lopan is in this horrible guise, but you're right, the scene is lightened by Jack Burton and, and some of these quick, uh, quips these one-liners uh and they, they are very laugh out loud funny aren't they yeah yeah he's um and he's a wise cracker we said that jack is obviously interested in his truck it almost makes him sound selfish doesn't he here he is with wang whose fiance is tied up did you get the impression straight away that yes he's going on about the truck but actually he's also invested in helping wang Um, i mean he wouldn't be there if he wasn't would he yeah, I mean the truck is the thing that gives him the the, the the thing for the nice punchlines and things like that. But as you said, he wouldn't have gone down there. He wouldn't have gone to rescue her. You know, he wouldn't have even bothered uh, chasing her in the first place because he had no reason to. Um, but obviously, he's got a good heart, Jack, and he's the hero. Um, meanwhile, uh, whilst Jack and uh, Wang are bound to these uh, wheelchairs and blindfolded, you have uh, Gracie, Margot, and Eddie Lee who also turn up at the uh, Wing Kong Exchange. Um, but much like our, our, our two leads, uh, they're also uh, captured, aren't they? 
uh, their attempts at going undercover uh, wasn't fooling the security guards this time. Um, I think Thunder and the Three Storms, or Thunder, isn't it? It's just the leader, I think you can call him. But the gas, did they gas these three? Yeah, in in, a, in an elevator or something. They don't have quite the, the same uh, bravado as Jack and Wang when they just wander in past the security guards. They try and reason with them and try and get past them and try and, uh, you know, assert themselves. But obviously that doesn't work. Um, you know, also I must say as well, Kim Cattrall is is absolutely <laughs> beautiful in this film, isn't she? Well, fre- fresh off the back of Porky's and, and whatnot. <laughs> I think off the, off the back of Police Academy too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You'd think she'd maybe um, flutter her eyelashes, eyelashes or something like that. <laughs> well, you, uh, if you know me well enough, you know that I still call her Lassie. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Um, but I, I like the next five, ten minutes of this film because we see the relationship between Jack and Wang really start to develop. And um, I think Jack is slowly coming to terms with the idea that the, the prospect of sorcery and, and Chinese black magic are, are real. And I think we can credit the film here because uh, it makes it sound more reasonable because the characters themselves have doubts. I think Wang, uh, there's a point when he's talking about... Um, the legends and stories that they were told when they were kids and how they didn't want them to be true um, and they pretended not to believe them. And I think that was a really clever way of of kind of, this is an unbelievable world, you know, if if you're speaking about reality, but just that if you have the characters within the the film also having doubts about the legitimacy of these things, I think it just lends a bit more credibility, doesn't it? It does, but it also gives us an insight into different cultures and how they might live their lives and how they have got an understanding of myths and legends in their own culture that nobody outside of that world of Chinatown, other than Jack, obviously, because he goes there for his delivery business, nobody knows about, like a separateness to it. And also, yeah, Jack is quite uh, naive. He's also um, disbelieving. And, you know, we see he's interested in the material thing of his truck because thinking back to the scene at the restaurant, He's on the phone to the insurance company, isn't he? Um, saying, like, don't give me this act of God and all this sort of nonsense. And, uh, you know, he, he 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 can't quite get his head around all of this stuff. He doesn't want to believe it. But neither do, uh, I, neither, neither do the characters who are familiar with it. You know, they, they as you said, they try and pretend that, that it's not a real thing. Uh, they soon escape. Um, I think we see a scene, don't we, where Thunder... Um, shows this um, side of rage. And uh, it's really unusual because his buttons, his, his chest and his stomach starts to inflate. Oh, just briefly um, at, at this point in the film, I know something different happens later on, but this is the point in the film where his, I think his buttons burst, don't they? <laughs> um, so unusual. And, and again, we go back to the, the crazy choices that uh, John Carpenter added to this film along with the story writers. Uh, anything to say on Thunder's Rage? <laughs> um, and it's a great shot, isn't it? When he b- blows up and, and Jack is sort of looking like, what the hell's going on here? And then he falls backwards and then we get that great shot uh, of him falling backwards in the wheelchair going down the ramp to the well. Yeah, it, do you know what? The only criticism I could lay on that scene is that uh, you expect as Jack stands up the wheelchair to, to fall down this well, but he clearly pushes that back into the well. 
You know, come on, Jeff. You're a um, does. <laughs> there's a scene shortly after that, Jeff, and, and we'll, I'm sure you'll have picked up on it as well, but it's a transformation scene where uh, David Lopan goes from this horrible, crippled old man into the sorcerer. And it's really horrible because his skin, it glows almost like he's on fire uh, up. A bit like when you, you hold a torch behind like a part of your body and it has this red glow. Did you recall the scene I'm referring to? Yeah, absolutely. His, his skin goes a sort of translucent colour and the light comes out of his eyes. Do you know what I was reminded of in, in the shot when you see it? Almost like a skull thing. The um, the aliens in They Live, the John Carpenter film. Do you know what I mean? I do indeed. Yeah. And then in the flash... There's a sort of fade to white, and then we see him then as, you know, in his full-on uh, headdress and things. And he he does this unusual slide around the room, doesn't he? He's not walking. It's like he's on a trolley. Mm. And he floats, doesn't he, through the walls? He goes through uh, the walls to to where um, uh, the, the, uh, Wang's girlfriend is. Is she, like, floating in midair? I think so, yeah. Um, but they soon rescue Grace, don't they? Uh, Gracie, Margot and uh, seemingly a bunch of other women who seem to have been captured by the, the, the gangs. I'm not quite sure why they're being held, but there's a, a group of people who are also kind of um, locked up, incarcerated, caged, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's our first clue that, well, I suppose I wouldn't say it's the first clue because I think the film tries to hint that there's a little bit of chemistry between Jack and Gracie, Um Almost like the bully at school, he kind of talks it down and she kind of dismisses him, but secretly they like each other. Mm. And um, during this rescue scene, I think they're in the sewers of this water and they kiss, don't they? I mean, was number one, was that necessary? And, and number two, did it did it lend anything to the story, this, this romance? Yeah, I think, um, you know, John Carpenter was trying to include a little bit of everything in this film. And, uh, you know, that... I guess it, it does date it a little bit, ages it somewhat, where, you know, you've got the, the hero and and the girl. They, they hate each other, which obviously means that they're going to end up together. Like, it, that's such a cliche, isn't it, in films? And I guess maybe that just does make it of its time a little bit. Because up until this point, there's been very little to imply that there is a, a, a romance between the two of them. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it was, I suppose, out the blue, but I suppose it was for the characters as well, because, they, you know, it, it's, they, they almost react to the kiss and shock themselves, don't they? So, yeah, there, it's there not a, a criticism. There is a good line, though, you know, uh, someone, is it him or her? They say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be alive. Oh, there you go. So it's a relief as much as a, a as yeah. A, a romance. Yeah. We, we'll, we'll let it, we'll let it slide. Um, I mean, I had no problems with it. I just thought whether you thought it felt out of place because the film doesn't try and spend too much time developing this romance, does it? It just happens to be there. But yeah, I think it just lends to the character of, of, of Jack Burton, that he's this wise guy, uh, fast-talking, bumbling oaf, you know? He's he still uh, obviously wants a bit of a love interest. And I suppose that in, in, in the late 80s, a character like that, not having relations or a, a love interest meet up, might have felt out of place, I suppose. But we also see... Not long after that, Wang uh, take out about seven or eight um, members of the Wing Kongs. And he's quite the accomplished martial artist, isn't he? All the while, 
Jack Burton's busy trying to get a knife out of his boots, albeit making a absolute pig's ear out of it. And I think this just this is just where we start to see actually it's not Jack who's sort of our main character here in this world. You know, Wang is our is a tough guy. He's not Wang is not just like the the sidekick uh, or like the ethnic ethnic minority stereotype. I mean, he is he is hard as nails, you know, and he knows what's what. So, and he also batters that fellow with the long straggly hair to the machete guy. <laughs> he makes light work of him, in fact, doesn't he? He does. He, um, he grabs onto a pipe and then sort of does like a roundhouse kick. <laughs> but they flee, don't they? They uh, all, uh, I think, Egg Shen's tour bus, or, or, yeah, is waiting outside. And as they attempt to flee, bear in mind they haven't rescued Miao Yin. Um, I'm not quite sure why they decided to do that. I think they wanted to get the, the girls to safety, but. They were, in fact, fleeing without Miao Yin at this point. Um, but um, Gracie's taken as well, isn't she, at this point, by a horrible creature. I mean, I, again, um, I can only talk about seeing it when I was a young lad. I remember being very frightened of this creature uh, lurking in the bowels of this building. But uh, she's abducted, isn't she? And she's um, taken into the depths of this building. But it, it's bad luck for Gracie because... She just happens to have green eyes herself. She she does. She has beautiful green eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we, we you like it. We get it, Chris. You like it. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the weird monster is uh, a bit like the Harry and the Hendersons from Hell kind of thing, <laughs> and, which was also uh, scary as a kid. Yeah, she's taken down, and the 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 the, the three storms, as well as. Um, uh, 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 Lopan now back in his sort of uh, old man's guys are there down in the uh, down in the sort of basement areas and he's, he comes in and says something like you know uh, two girls with green eyes what does that mean and this one's got fire you know so uh, he's uh, you see he, it's, he seems to, it's like all of his Christmases have come at once <laughs> I mean he's waited 3,000 years it does seem hard to believe that he's waited for a green-eyed woman, doesn't it? But hey, there you go. Yeah. Maybe they are a rarity, I don't know. Um, but again, the gang, the good gang, the protagonists, uh, they're not going to leave Gracie and Miao Yin. Uh, they want to go back. They want to make another visit to the uh, exchange. But this time, they're not going to go alone. They're going to be going with Egg Shen and the Shang Sings. Uh, all of a sudden, the odds uh, look slightly better for them at this point. Yeah, um, Egg Shen turns up with this ridiculous gun, which is like, if you imagine the one that Joker pulls out in Batman, you know, <laughs> with a huge extended barrel on the end of it. He <laughs> <laughs> mentioned something about Dirty Harry. <laughs> we, we, oh, that's right, I think. Yeah, because there is almost like a feel of he's like a, a, a comical version of Dirty Harry, isn't he, Jack Burton? That's right, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. The two green-eyed girls uh, are in some form of trance, aren't they? Um, and the three storms, uh, the performance, some kind of, I don't know how you describe it, like an ancient ceremonial routine, isn't it? I don't know if that's what puts them in the trance, but it's something about the burning blade. Uh, Lopan, I think, at this point, decides that he's going to marry both of them. Um, I think we find out later on that he intends to sacrifice one of them. Uh, we don't know um, who uh, but I thought it was really good, a really unusual scene, and it was just a chance to show off 
maybe just a little bit of martial arts, martial arts and uh, that kind of style and a bit more of a, a nod to the uh, mysticism and mythology uh, and the law. Yeah, is this when they've got all sorts of like weird makeup on, like really heavily made up? Yes, I believe so. Oh, well, I don't know if it's just before that, but they're in that room, aren't they, with all the buddhas and, and, and the gong and they're, oh, they're all performing yeah. this strange ritual. Um, but Egg Shen, I mean, we, we go back to the, the good guys. I, I like, I mean, he's creating some kind of potion, isn't he, uh, in a flask. We don't even know what's in it. Um, but he does say that um, he, he has this line, doesn't he? Only a dream can kill a dream. And I don't really think it means anything. It doesn't help us in any way. But I thought it was a nice, nicely put because I think he, he, he talks about um, Egg Shen. He's not real, is he? Uh, and it just goes to um, show that Egg Shen is this, he's a mysterious guy himself, isn't he? Uh, and, and he believes in all this sorcery and mystery. Um, but what do you think he meant by that? Um, what does, when I'm talking about the line, only a dream can kill a dream. Uh, and did you pick up on it? I did, but I didn't understand it. And I, even now, thinking about it on reflection, I don't know what it means. Only a dream can kill a dream. No. Well, if if any if anyone out there does know what Egg Shen meant, then by all means, send us a tweet and, and, and we'll look into it. But it's just something that I, I'd overheard. Um, but we also can't move on without mentioning the... I'm not quite sure what we're going to call it, Jaff, but the blob of eyes, <laughs> Lopan spy, if you like. Uh, I mean, that is just as bizarre as it gets. It's it's so weird. And uh, gross. Yeah. It's like, do you know what? It's like a baddie off the game, Doom. Before Doom. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Again, but like the creative, so creative. Yeah, just it's. I don't know what else it's to gross. say. About. Yeah, no, it's gross. But we soon come to uh, the wedding, uh, the wedding itself. Uh, but just before the protagonists spoil the party, um, they all knock back, don't they? Some of Egg Shen's potion. Uh, I think they say, "I'll give you a buzz." It's weird because I think when we first hear of the fact that there's a potion, you assume it's going to be a weapon that they're going to use against David Lopin, but no, it's actually a drink for our protagonists, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, is this... Why do they take it, then? He, he uh, Egg Shen says that the, the power in here is is our only hope to protect us against against the evil. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they're just trying to throw in some sort of mysticism there. You know, just the same. And it doesn't it doesn't harm the film because I mean it, it doesn't take any anything away from the film. It doesn't, as I say, I think there's one or two instances um throughout the movie where you're just kind of left to believe uh, the intentions of the characters. It doesn't waste any time explaining what it is and why they're using it. We just accept it on good faith that Egg Shen's a sorcerer himself. Yeah. And he believes yeah. in these powers and that he believes that by drinking this potion they'll stand a better chance of, of beating Lopin. Yeah, I think the only sort of discussion we have about it is um, Jack says, do we drink this potion? And Egg Shen says, yeah. And Jack goes, good. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. And then that eye the showdown following them around. The showdown itself, we, we, we'll have to talk about the duel between Wang and Rain. And I think you, you referred earlier on in, in this review about the use of the choreography uh, and, and how the these characters fly through the air. 
and, and no more so than this scene uh, and this fight. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, is there a shot where, well, first of all, they're doing all sorts of loops and loops and loops. Is there a shot where he sort of runs up the archway of a wall and does a flip or something like that? Yeah. But there's, is, I mean, yeah. again, there's a big battle going on in the background. Great choreography. Uh, people flying around everywhere, obviously on trampolines and things like that. But we also see that shot, don't we, of Thunder with the gun. He's got like a machine gun. He just punches it. <laughs> it explodes. <laughs> Yeah, the fight choreography, because, you know, don't don't forget, you know, there's fight cho- choreography, but there's also choreography with weapons as well. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of skill to actually portray these things on screen and make them look effective. Oh, very much so. I mean, if you think about these five, ten minutes, uh, the, the pyrotechnics, the cable work, uh, the trampoline work, you cannot take your eyes off the screen. There's so much going on. And, and you've got, obviously, we, we talked about the, the duel between Wang and Rain. You've also got the, the duel between Egg Shen and Lopan, which you, you wouldn't know how they would do it. I mean, not in a physical sense, but we see the uh, manifestation of these weird creatures. I, I think Egg Shen has this pink uh, manifestation that comes from his powers, and Lopan has this green manifestation, and they start doing battle. Again, very strange, very bizarre, but you couldn't take your eyes off it. No, it is weird, isn't it? It is like something out of a video game because they are moving uh, the fingers like like the playing with the computer game control pad. And then the, there's the battle, the the clash of swords, and then uh, Lopan says to Egg Shen, "No, you know you could never beat me." And then and and then the other um, the other uh, uh, storm fires sort of lightning bolts at Egg Shen, who pulls out a fan. To deflect the, I mean, it's bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but I think that that's a common trope, isn't it, in in some of these uh, films? Um, and, and I think George Lucas was uh, always saying this about Star Wars that the power of the um, the Empire was defeated by the um, how would you describe it? The bare minimum of, of of the common people, you know, the Ewoks who use nothing more than timber and logs and yeah. booby traps. And, and I think that's a little bit similar in this instance where you've got Egg Shen using something as simple as a reflective fan. Um, very clever, in fact, re- really good, really, really plays off well on screen. So a hell of a lot going on. But oh, also oh, at the oh, same oh. time, you've got, we obviously talk about the, the two main duels. You've got Jack Burton doing, having a duel with himself. I mean, at one point, doesn't he? He shoots his gun above him and the, the debris falls on top of him. Um, Again, even in the, 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 the heart of the battle, he's doing things that are causing more problems than anything else because he's a bit of a, an oafish character. That's right. He, he's a bumbling oaf himself. Um, but it leads us eventually, uh, I think Lopan eventually does escape and uh, it leads us into that Buddha, I think we'll call it a Buddha room. I'm not quite sure how you describe it. Um, but this is where, of course, David Lopan meets his end. And um, the unexpected, whether you'd call it an unexpected hero in Jack Burton, um, I'm not sure. But he does, of course, uh, is the one to defeat Lopan. Um, because ju- just prior to this, we have David Lopan finally becoming mortal. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how it goes again, but he, he, he pricks one of them with a needle, doesn't he? He needs their blood and... 
I think he even starts drinking Meowian's blood at one point. But it does. it's um, disgusting. He he cuts a wrist and then starts to start sucking from a wrist. Yeah. But it, it does of of course mean that he is becoming mortal, uh, which gives the protagonists uh the opportunity to kill him. And it's seized upon by our uh, our lead, Jack Burton. I, th- it, I think we see hear the line, don't we? He goes to throw the knife uh, or something at uh, Lopan. And, and Lopan says something like, it's a good knife. Goodbye, Mr. Burton. And he throws the knife back at, at, at Jack. And much like that scene at the gambling table when he catches the bottle, he catches this knife and throws it quickly back into the forehead of David Lopan. Um, very quick, easy, well, I say easy, but a uh, very quick way of, of killing are, are big antagonists. But how did you find that? Yeah, quite um, quite sudden, quite abrupt. Um, it just happens, doesn't it? But as you said, the the skill that he's got, which you mentioned earlier, he's uh, it foreshadows the fact that he can be quick. Uh, and you know, even though he is a bit of an oaf, um, he has got some quick wits about him. He, he even says, doesn't he? Because uh, I think Kim Cattrall's character's kind of looking like, how? What's happened? And he says, it's all in the reflexes. <laughs> Well, let's not forget he has had a shot of Egg Shen's tequila, so it could have been the buzz from that still working its way through him. Maybe that's what it was. Is, um, is, is Thunder still alive at this point? Um, I think he is. I think he does actually um, live past Lopan. I think that does follow. Um, but uh, it's that it. I think it might might actually be the following scene, um, and, and we have to mention it because. If someone said to me, uh, you know, over the years, um, have you seen Big Trouble in Little China? I think there would be a part of me that immediately thinks of this scene. Not that it's the best, but it just leaves a mark on you because it's so bonkers and horrible. Um, but it, we go back to Thunder's Rage, don't we? Where he he inflates to the extent where smoke's coming out of his nostrils, his ears... Uh, it, it, I mean, it's gross again, uh, and he explodes. Um, <laughs> we don't actually see the explosion of, of his body, but we see this other shot, uh, and we obviously see see his body parts from around the corner. It, it looks like rotten lettuce and vegetables, really, when you watch it back. <laughs> yeah, um, but, 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 you see the but body, very simple body and, and, and that's what upsets him. That's what makes him, uh, you know, because they're getting ready for a fight with him. But when he sees the body, it's like he just can't cope. And uh, and has a, a meltdown while he doesn't explode. Do you know it reminds me very much of the shot in uh, uh, the Bond film, Live and Let Die. I think it is. There's a baddie called Kananga, and Bond shoots this sort of uh, inflate inflation gun into his mouth, and and his whole body explodes, uh, flies up into the rafters, and then explodes. And it it looks exactly the same. You know, like a kind of like rubber head with like all all expanded outwards. It was it was almost identical to that, but when the steam comes out of his nostrils, that's it's so comical and so great, but still effective. Yeah, I think the last one uh, of the three storms to survive is Lightning, uh, and they do manage to evade him. I think he's um, too busy, uh, you know, um, showcasing his skills instead of trying to kill them. But I think there's uh, we see the scene where he's kind of doing all this with his lightning hands instead of just killing. Our leads just they're running away, but they do evade them. I think they drop something on them. I think Egg Shen or they throw some sort of ornament or um, one of these Buddha statues. They throw something on them, don't they, which kills them. Yeah, I think it is actually JD, if I remember rightly, a a huge statue or something. Um, And of course, following that, as luck would have it, 
not only have they rescued Miao Yin and Gracie, but they also uh, chance upon Jack's truck, the Pork Chop Express, is, is waiting there on their way out. Perfect. <laughs> Probably got um, a, enough fuel to uh, get away as well. <laughs> cue the uh, relatively muted celebrations, really, back at the uh, uh, the black, well, the, the, the Cantonese restaurants, aren't they? And I think we see uh, Egg Shen makes his way out. He walks off into the distance. And I think the last shot of the film is Jack Burton. Uh, well, in fact, I suppose before we touch upon that, there's a quick exchange between him and, and, and Gracie. I suppose before we uh, touch upon that last shot, we, we probably have to let's say a quick word about uh, the brief exchange between Jack and Gracie Law. It, it's almost a Han Solo moment of, you know, I love you. He goes, I know. Not quite in those words, but you get the impression that she she expects a kiss, doesn't she? Or like some sort of embrace. Uh, but he doesn't pr- provide it, does he? He just uh, he, he delivers a witty line and walks off. Yeah, they're having this kind of like a, a corny chat, like uh, it'll only work if you buy an apartment for two, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then he says, um, doesn't someone say, aren't you going to kiss her? And he's just sitting around and he goes, no. <laughs> Brilliant. And of course, the last shot, we, we think at uh, Jack going off into the sunset or the moonlight, because it is at night, isn't it? And he's back in his truck. But the camera pans, doesn't it, to the back? And here is that. Uh, horrible orangutan-like uh, beast um, still alive in the back of the truck because we had forgotten about about him at this point. I think people at the time seeing that probably expected the sequel, uh, much like Mac and Me. But here mm-hmm. we are, nearly 40, 40 years on, and we still don't have a sequel to both. Um, but uh, no, that, but that does enough, come through. Funny enough, both of those scenes feature... Uh, so Funny enough, both of those films feature a scene where someone is in a wheelchair and uh, is in danger of falling off. I think <laughs> in Mac and Me, someone does fall off a, a cliff in a wheelchair, if I remember rightly. It's true. But, yeah. but in, uh, in this film, it's just teetering on the edge of a well. But yeah, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get a sequel to either of those films. <laughs> oh, well, we can only live in hope. Yeah, just before, 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 I mean, you mentioned the very last scene with the horrible creature thing claws its way up the truck. Um, but just prior to that and prior to the very last scene in the restaurant, when they escape, after all of the craziness that's happened, all of the fighting, I find it quite uh, humorous, the fact that they see a, a police car and a fire engine going down the street, and they kind of panic, don't they, at the, the, the stop sign and make sure that they do all the right things and stop in the right places. And I just thought that was an interesting scene to put in. Actually, it's almost like all that chaos has happened, but it's happened out of sight in this world which is so far removed from everyday life that when we just have this normal scene, this uh, humorous scene of normality, there's quite a contrast between what we've just gone through and what we're seeing right now. Did you recall that shot? I, I know exactly the shot, and, and I think, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's true and it lends to the fact that when our characters are down in this, into the depths of this Chinatown, they really are alone. Uh, there's no support from the police. You actually forget that the police exist in this film. You don't have that sense of authority. And, and it heightens the danger, doesn't it, for the characters? So I think you're right to point it out. It, it does, yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, this is a, a no-go area for the authorities. The police can't get anywhere near this. So anything can happen in here. 
funny enough, as they as they ascend from the, the the depths of this place where they're in with the truck, the last people, baddies, as it were, to fight them or for them to escape from are the are the security guards, like the normal security guards in their outfits. So it's almost like they've gone into like like the boss levels, <laughs> and now they're coming back up to the easy levels on the way out. But at the same time, they're returning back to some semblance of of normality with these guys in their outfits and things like that. So cleverly done, cleverly done. Movie trivia. Okay, Jeff Dog. Uh, let's reveal a few things that your average big T in Little C fan might not know. Um, I read that the rivalry between the Shang Tsings and the Wing Kongs was inspired by the famous rivalry between the Hip Sing and the Onleongs in the early 20th, 20th century who fought for control of New York City's Chinatown. And from what I've read, the Hip Sing Association is still in control over most of the vice in Chinatown today. Uh, I thought that was really good and really interesting. And I, I, I think it just lends credence to the kind of man that John Carpenter is. Yes, you've got this weird and wacky film, but still inspired in, in part to some of these real elements. Yeah, um, and we see this throughout his, his films. There's something supernatural about uh, Michael Myers. And yet at the same time, there's something, you know, a serial killer. These things happen around about the time of, of, of the film in the 70s, the serial, it was like the, the age of the serial killers, as it were, before before technology moved on to the point where, you know, you couldn't really get away with that stuff anymore. Um, we see it again in Escape from New York, where you've got this, um, the idea of a society on the brink of collapse. And uh, at the time, in the early 1980s, New, you know, New York was crime-ridden and, um, it, it was seen in many ways that there was no hope for this place. So the, the the supernatural step, as it were, where the film Escape from New York takes it to that next level, which is a bit like way off what, what could ever happen in real life, is the idea of New York being separated off as a as a, a prison island. Um, that takes it into the realms of fantasy, but it's got that basis in reality as well. Um, same with They Le Live as well. Uh, the idea that the society that we live in is actually being manipulated um, from from within by by someone else, this other uh, alien race. Um, solid ideas, you know, because people might feel that the capitalist system, I think there's one of my catchphrases in there, <laughs> is sort of somewhat rigged against them. And yet at the same time, okay, well, well yeah, what if it was? And what if it was, um, you know, what if it was actually in, in, being controlled by something other? something supernatural, something extraterrestrial, as it were. So, yeah, there seems to be a common common theme throughout his films. is um, fantasy, but grounded, very much grounded in in reality. And and boy, how do we miss it in, in today's cinema, eh? Well, everything's um, got to be very po-faced, doesn't it? You know, and uh, or if there is something that it is fantastical, it has to be rationalised away. You know, even if you look even in uh, Star Wars, they even did that. Uh, when they tried to explain the force with uh, something actual physical. Midichlorians. Midichlorians, yeah. I mean, that for me sums up um, taking something that just treat the audience with the ability to uh, go with the flow rather than trying to actually explain everything. Here's a good one for you. Uh, Gerald uh, Okamura, and I hope I've pronounced that right, Gerald, 
um, who was one of the iconic Wing Kong gang members. You'll remember him. He was the guy with the baldy head who we touched upon earlier. Um, he went the extra mile for his audition. Um, he decided to showcase his martial arts skills by taking along a student and proceeded to throw him around for about 10 minutes. Uh, now, now, John Carpenter, who was there at the audition, was looking on and, and, and seemingly impressed. Uh, but Gerald was, was, in fact, picked for the part, uh, much to his delight. Uh, his skills uh, had seemingly paid off. Um, unfortunately for Gerald, he turned up at the 20th century prop department and was handed two gold-plated six-shooters and bandoliers, uh, much to the amusement of the other crew members, uh, because, of course, if you recall from the actual uh, the costume itself, the bullets in those bandoliers were humongous. Uh, they were almost three times the size of something you'd expect to see in in those uh, guns. But I thought it was really good. And, it, it, you know, he still loves the movie. He speaks very fondly of it. But it's just quite amusing to think that there he was pulling off all his best moves, only to be handed uh, American weapons. <laughs> um, now, my last two, I'm going to cheat. Um, but I thought it was uh, something that it's rather best being delivered by the man himself, uh, John Carpenter. Um, so if you will excuse me while I, uh, instead of giving you these little bits of trivia and, and tidbits, I'm going to leave it in the uh, competent uh, hands of John Carpenter himself. Now, the first one is, 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 here's John basically saying why he's so proud of Big Trouble in Little China. But there's something in it that I'm extremely proud of, and it's, it's an essence, okay? It is Chinese, Chinese mysticism and mythology presented to Western audiences with authenticity. It's a world we never have seen before in Western films. It's in the Chinese cinema. And the way I researched this movie was I watched a lot of Chinese cinema and their films, and I found a point of view with which to take, which is one of unsophistication and innocence. They see the world very beautifully, and they, they describe action and movement and color in a certain way. And I tried to, tried to get that into my movie. Yeah, the, the, the mythology... There's a lot of that kind of uh, mysticism. Um, I can't think of gremlins. Uh, you know, we, we see little glimpses of it, don't we? And uh, only a tiny, tiny bit in, in that film. But there's so much there that could be delved into um, by, by, by movies in the West. Um, it could be, can be done in, 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 a, in, a, in a very cack-handed way if it's not done right. But he did want to present that to the audience and he did it and he did it effectively and yeah it goes a bit fantastical in some places but goodness me it's uh it's chock full of references and it's great uh, the next one again is just a quick audio and this is uh john carpenter talking about the film that kind of inspired big trouble in little china this is something that i was never aware of so it was i think this is really interesting but let me know your thoughts on this I, I may be treading on dangerous territory, but I sat there, John, thinking, this is a Chinese Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, does that bother you that I was sitting there thinking that? It doesn't bother me a bit. Um, in some ways, I suppose you're right. It's, it's much like a film that I saw, a Chinese film called um, The Swordsman, which was made over in, um, in Hong Kong, which had a lot of the same elements as Big Trouble. 
it, it was basically the Chinese Star Wars. I have never seen a movie like this, and, and it's never been released in America. And it is so magical and so much fun. And when I saw it, I thought, if I can get a little of that in my film, I'm doing all right. Well, there we go, JD. I never knew that. That's something for us to uh, definitely delve into. It is. Uh, Jeff Dog. it's over to you. Yeah, did you know, JD, that um, it's, it's a very similar themed film to a film with Eddie Murphy in around about the same time. Do you know what that film was called? I don't know if it's The Last Emperor or something like that. No, no, I can see where you're coming from, but it's it's The Golden Child. Uh, both of them had a, had a sort of theme around Chinese legend and, and magic. The, the, both of the films were actually offered originally to John Carpenter, but he decided to go with Big Trouble in Little China. It, all he said on it was, uh, The Golden Child has what he d- said was a pre-sold ingredient, being Eddie Murphy. But big trouble doesn't. So so he felt that he had to make a better movie. So I think maybe where he was coming from there was Eddie Murphy was this big, big star. And I guess Eddie Murphy was already you knew what kind of character he was gonna be. So it would have probably limited how how the character could have been portrayed. Um I, I definitely couldn't see Eddie Murphy being portrayed as playing second fiddle to to someone in in the, in the way that that, he, that Wang is that dynamic with Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell was already famous at this point. God, he'd been in films since the sixties. I remember seeing him seeing him in one like a live action Disney one where he he then you may have seen this. Uh, he had a, a duck or a goose that laid golden eggs or something. <laughs> well, well, he was only young. He was only a boy at the time, or you know. But yeah, anyway, so Kurt Russell was obviously famous, but I guess he felt that he could use him in a way differently to to Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I mean, I think Kurt Russell does a, a great job in this film, and I can't think of anything that I'd seen prior to um, Big Trouble in Little China. He did do a film with uh, Goldie Horn. I think it's called Overboard. I'm not quite sure what year that was, but I mean, I was a fan of him in the 80s, and he just seems perfect for the role of, of Jack Burton. He's this... Um, almost like a hybrid of of John Wayne, uh, Dirty Harry, and then you've got like a bit of a, a Laurel and Hardy element to him. Uh, and I think he can pull off those three styles of character, whereas I think Eddie Murphy, I'm not saying Eddie Murphy's a one-trick pony, but he's certainly more the, the goofball, comedic uh, uh, person, whereas I think Jack can play those other kind of dynamics or, or catch, other say. Yeah, I think you mentioned... Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Dirty Harry, who's also referenced in in the film. I think um, I think Clint Eastwood was was originally offered this film actually, which you your initial thought might be, well, Clint Eastwood is he's like action guy, but if you've seen a film where he's with the orangutan, <laughs> uh, every any which way but loose, or every which way but loose. Uh, Dunstan checks in. Is it something like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was late. That that one on <laughs> <laughs> I think I had that one on video. <laughs> the one pound basket at Woolworths. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, okay, so did you know then, JD, we've talked about this a lot, but I'm, so I'm sure you already knew it, but John Carpenter had originally wanted this to be a, an invasion of the traditional... Um, white man is the the hero, the American, all American hero. 
he wanted it to be a, an invasion of that. And as we've noted already, that Jack is portrayed as very bumbling throughout the film. You know, he stumbles to pull his weaponry out, that sort of thing. That sounds rude. <laughs> 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 he, he stumbles to, to, uh, to, 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 he struggles to get the knife out of his, his shoe and pocket, all that sort of stuff. Um, and of course, we see that the, the sidekick Wang Chi is, is elevated much more to the main character. I think that the, the the poster betrays this a little bit. Now, the poster's designed, I can't recall the name of the guy, but you'll know, and everyone will know him straight away. He's the one who did the Star Wars posters and the Indiana Jones. You know that style where you've got a, a, a sort of collage of different uh, characters. Usually you've got the main character is the largest one on the front and all of the other characters and events are happening around that. Uh, we see it, like I've said, in all the Star Wars, the Indiana Jones films, and the look is a kind of a uh, cartoonish and yet realistic look uh, to them. I think if Kurt Russell was maybe a little bit smaller on that poster, um, that that might come across a little bit better. But as it stands, um, he's huge on the poster and looks heroic. So he's portrayed as the hero of the film. I think it might have been a bolder step if he was maybe a little bit smaller, uh, but that's been a little bit picky, perhaps. No, I think you're right. I think the film does a good job of that in verse. I mean, we can't speak for the for the Asian community, but we can only uh, speak on behalf of the, the, the characters in the film because I've seen in interviews how much they loved making this film and, and, and having the opportunity to showcase some of these themes that we, we very rarely see in Western cinema. We, we talked about like the Shogun Assassins and things like that and Enter the Dragon. All our influences came from uh, from Asia. So it, I thought it was nice and I thought John Carpenter did it tactfully and, and entertainingly. But I think the, the poster guy, uh, I think his name was Drew Struzan or Struzan. That's I'm pretty sure that's the name of the guy. He did the uh, the Star Wars ones. That, that's but classic, name, yeah. classic posters. Yeah, really good. Now I think he did a good job. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you know, JD, that, uh, and you might need to rewatch this just to see, but in the wedding scene, where Lopan is is putting the needle of love in Mao Yin, uh, James Hong actually stabbed the, the the actress a little bit too hard, and you do actually see a flinch when he does it in the film. I have read about that. It was, I'm just starting to chuckle that you, you said that he was inserting his needle of love into Miao Yin. It just sounded so <laughs> very harsh on James Hong. Um, but yeah, no, I did read that, and I'm not surprised. I mean, if you watch that scene, it's uh, you can actually tell. That I, I did notice the wince, and obviously you put it down to good acting, but no, it was obviously legitimate <laughs> method acting. And just like one little last one to finish on, JD, uh, if, if I may. Uh, Kate Russell turned down the lead role in Highlander to uh, appear in this, and of course the main. The main character went in Highlander went to the main role of Conor McLeod went to Christopher Lambert. However, do you recall that Christopher Lambert also played Raiden in the Mortal Kombat film later on in 1995, if I remember rightly? And was it uh, Raiden or was it Raiden or Raiden? I'm riding high at the moment, so just <laughs> go along with it. I'm pretty sure it was Raiden. Okay. But I right. know do you know what? I know exactly what you're gonna say because he, of course. Now, I don't know if this is true, but he, of course, was the basket, uh, basket hat, whatever you want to call it, wearing character from Mortal Kombat. 
Um, so are you going to tell me now that that was inspired by Big Trouble in Little China? It, it certainly seems to be, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at those characters and you see the comparisons, you can't help but make the comparison there um, with the, with, with the, the, you know, the, the, the style, the look of the character. Such a brilliant costume. I mean, it, it almost sounds ludicrous to say that you're going to have these three characters who appear with baskets on the head. You, you almost couldn't visualize it. And yet the film manages to make them look so good. I mean, you can say the same with Raiden in Mortal Kombat. And maybe that's because it's ingrained in our minds from, from John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. But I, I love the three storms and I, and I love that design. But no, that's a nice little nod, I think, to Mortal Kombat. Hey, it's movie feedback time. Okay, thanks to everyone who sent their feedback in on this episode. There's much love for Big Trouble in Little China, as there is for all of our 80s movies. But uh, I'll, I'll read through some of them now, and then, uh, J-Dog, I'll let you pass some of your thoughts on at the end. Uh, but Don Bingham, uh, 1011, at dbingham1011, uh, said, well, in fact, he quotes, 2,000 years and you can't find the girl to fit the bill. Come on, Dave, you must be doing something seriously wrong. And this goes back to the scene, what we'd said about Jack Burton being that wise, cracking uh, guy, the good Joker, and that really breaks up that scene uh, with, with, with Lopan. And there's just so many great one-liners he delivers, and that's certainly one of them. Um, the Fixer, Esquire, at The Fixer, ESQ, um, said, uh, which Lopan, little old basket case on wheels or the 10-foot-tall roadblock? Now, that always makes me laugh. Um, I, I, we were even joking about whether to call the episode after that uh, question, but we'll see. Um but it just goes to show, I mean, he had, he was a man of many guises, wasn't he? Long-time listener, regular contributor, Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper, at uh, Lebody. Uh, you must um, let me know if I'm, I'm pronouncing your username correctly, because I'm, I'm always worrisome that some of these are sounding wrong. But he went on to say, uh, my absolute favourite. I love this film. Great sound, continuous action, a hero who's really the sidekick, a sidekick who's really the hero. What's not to love? Some trivia for you. The suit Kate Russell wears as Henry Swanson is the same suit he wore in Used Cars. I don't know if you knew that, and I don't know if you've actually seen the film Used Cars. Um, and that, I can't remember the year, but I think it's 1980, 81. Have you seen that one? I haven't, no. It's, it's, it's good. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I think he, he's, uh, he has a bit of a run-in, like a fellow salesman. I think it's the granddad from Problem Child. Can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, Jack, want to check out Jack Jackson. Um, but yeah, th thank you for that, Bong Ripper. Uh, another bit of feedback for you was from Afshan Ismat at Afshan Ismat, who simply quoted, "And then the case will be lifted." Uh, and you can see from the caliber of these responses, this film's very quotable. People love some of these lines. And here's one for you, J Dog. I think you're gonna like this. We had a response from uh, Wemser himself. Of Revenge of the Nerds, Glory. Oh, wow. uh, Andrew Cassess at Landrew428, who just said one of my favourites. Well, guess what, Wormsit? You are one of our favourites. So thank you so much for contributing. Um, and just quickly, Wormsit, are you still watching the pies? Um, <laughs> moving, moving on. Um, Whiting Sutter at Whiting Sutter simply said, love everything about it. David Dynamite at Laughing Noir said, love it, one of my favourites, and always has been. Uh, Neil Renton 
said massively underrated. Also refreshing that the American is a bit of a clumsy hero. Maybe the reason it didn't get the recognition it deserves. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? I don't know uh, if we touched upon that, but you might want to re reserve something at, at the end. Um, and we also had uh, another comment from Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper, who said the Chinese characters in the main title, now I don't know if you recall this, but the title sequence at the beginning, when it reveals the words Big Trouble in Little China, you'll notice there's some Chinese lettering in the middle of it. Um, but they actually translate to evil spirits make a big scene in little spiritual state. <laughs> um, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, I, I, I got back on this and just said, you know, I've known the film 35 years. I always just assumed it was a literal translation, but uh, no, here we are, I've proven wrong. Um, but Bong also went on to say that when lightning is crushed by the falling statue at the end of the final fight scene, his electricity also makes a short-lived Chinese character that translates to carpenter for obvious reasons. That, that's eagle-eyed, I've got to say, well done. Um, it's not something I'd ever noticed, but again, lovely little touch. Um, and, and thank you again to everyone that, that sent the thoughts in. We always love to hear them. J-Dog, any thoughts on the roundup of those tweets? I mean, can I just firstly say thank you to everybody for your comments and remarks? I mean, it's, it's, it's great to have that engagement. Really appreciate the fact that you get in touch with us and uh, offering your 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 uh, your little two penneth in to uh, to help and assist us. I can't really respond back to absolutely everybody there, but from all of your comments there, I've learned a little bit of something and gleaned a little bit of something and thought, oh yeah, or thought, oh yeah, okay. So so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The no. there was one that, that that really stood out, which was um, what Jack says. Um, two thousand the two thousand years comment which we discussed earlier on in the episode. Um, that does sum up the character, doesn't it? Uh, and the other one to mention was perhaps it go, does go some way to explain why the film was a um less of a success than it than it could have been. We've said and you know about the cynicism of movie production companies, but maybe there's a reason for it. Perhaps they do need to be so methodical with the way they. Uh, do things and do business because if they step out of line with what the cultural um, mood of the times is, perhaps that 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 can be costly, a disastrous. And we see this now with, um, and we've talked many a times uh, in private about the um, the 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 colossal what what may be termed wokery uh, that seems to infest so much of of of, of culture and media at the moment. But perhaps back then in the in the gung-ho 80s, and I am going to say it, in the time of Reaganomics. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. But there was that attitude, the Rambo attitude, the brash attitude of the American knows best, and this is the way it is, and the big, tough American guy with the big muscles is, is going to be the one that um, that carries us through. That, that cultural attitude at the time was was the acceptable um, way of doing things. And it has changed now and it is different. And I am absolutely 100% certain that in 10, 20, 30 years time, it will be completely different too. And people will look back on the way things are done now and think, oh, can't believe they did that. But then that's the arrogance of each generation thinks it knows better than everything else before. Oh, you're quite right. Um, let's move on to your knowledge, J-Dog of Big Trouble in Little China. Yo, 
It's the movie quiz. Okay, Jeff, now question one. Uh, when Jack goes into the White Tiger, what does he say his name is? And you should get this because I've actually just read it out in our listener feedback. Crazy. Remember, he goes in it under the guise of someone else. I mean, I know he says he's uh, from the phone company. This is when he goes into the White Tiger brothel. Oh. And he's got the suit and the glasses. Oh, right. No, no, I'm sorry. No. Henry Swanson okay. is the answer. In fact, the line is, Henry Swanson's my name and excitement's my game. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the line. Um, but no, you didn't get that one. But moving on, question two. In the room with the gong and the Buddha-like statues, how many statues were there? And I'm going to help you with this, or at least I'm going to let you be within two of the correct answer to score the point. Within two? Oh, you're so yes. generous, JD. I tell you what, then I will let you boost it to a margin of three. Um, that gives you a, a potential of a range of six to get the right answer there. Wonderful. Okay, right. Just thinking back to the scene, I count maybe about twenty on each side, and then if I remember rightly, it's like a U shape, isn't it? And it's quite thin. So I'll go twenty, twenty-five, forty-five. You're way off, I'm afraid. It's twenty-three. <laughs> Okay, well, I, I was nearly double, so does that count for anything? <laughs> I'm afraid not. <laughs> okay, Jada, question three. At the end of the movie, when Egg Shen is leaving the restaurant, uh, Jack asks him why he doesn't go and vacation in his motherland, China. What was Egg Shen's response? Something about him, his work's done, and he doesn't... I'm I'm afraid not. I'm going to have to press you. I'm going to give you another couple of seconds unless you want to pass. Does he say that um, it doesn't matter where he goes? And you'll always... Yeah, you're getting warmer. Come on. No, no, yeah. no I'm going to have to cut you short. Uh, the answer was, of course, China's in the heart, Jack. Wherever I go, she's with me. Ah. Is that is that linked to the scene... At when he very first meets Egg Shen and he says something like, China is here. And he's Possibly. like, what the hell does that mean? China is here. Possibly so. Okay. Well, after those stinkers, JD, I'm uh, I'm not feeling anywhere near as bad as coming up with some nasty ones for you, okay? <laughs> right, I'll give you a nice easy one to start off, okay? Uh, what is Gracie's job? Uh, now, I just assumed she was a reporter. Nothing more. I mean, is, is 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 it a trick question? Is she just a reporter? No, 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 no. Her friend's a reporter. Uh, she, and I, I gave a little hint to this earlier on, she wants to go over to the import-export business to make sure that, uh, is it, what's the name again? Meow, 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 civil rights are not being infringed. Her job is a lawyer. Oh, interesting. She's Very interesting. I've missed that for 35 years. Right. Well, now, now you know. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> okay, uh, next one then. Um, we've talked about the battle scene. 
and the different colours. What colour turbans did Egg Shen's army wear? Egg Shen's army, the um, Sing, Shang Sings were yellow turbans. Very good. Yes, it's yellow. Uh, Lopan's crew were, uh, were wore the red. And lastly, mm-hmm. then, and I'm hoping that you uh, don't get this one to avoid my total uh, humiliation. When he's gambling, when Jack's gambling with Wang, when we very, very first meet Wang, after their night of gambling, he says, I've got nearly a thousand bucks here. And then Wang says the exact amount that he does have, like he's been counting all along. So I've given you a clue there. It is definitely around about a thousand. And just like earlier with me, I will give you uh, 20 bucks either side. Okay. If it's nearer, I think I'm pretty sure it's over a thousand. Yes. Um, I don't think it's going to be a great deal over. No, it's not. You're going to give me, you're going to give me 20 bucks range. Either way, yeah. Okay. I'm going to go for 1,030 bucks. Oh, I'm afraid you're, you're even way off than I was before. <laughs> it's it's 1,148. Oh, never mind. You did say it was close to 1,000. You've, you've misled me on that one. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> Jesus close Christ. To 1, 000, not close to 2,000. <laughs> close to 1,000? My God. <laughs> Favourite movie scene? Now, I'm not going to sit on the fence with this one, but I'm not going to spend too much time. And probably because I spoke about it at the start of this review, my favorite scene in this movie is the fight, um, the fighting tongues in, in that alley. Sometimes you, you, you do these reviews and you think you want to be different. You want to say something unusual and not the obvious. There's no point doing that. The best scene for me is the fight in that alley between the two gangs and obviously the introduction of the three storms. It has everything, atmosphere, special effects, music, mythology, great action, great suspense. There's nothing more I can say. Well, um, I don't really have much to add to that, JD, because I can say the exact same thing too. And I was also in a position like, as you outlined there as well. And, you know, we don't talk before we do this, but I was the same. I was thinking I'd, I'd, I'd like to see something other than that because I'd, I'd assume that it would be your favourite and I'd assume that it would be most other people's favourite because it's such a brilliant set piece. Um, if I was going to add anything, I'd say I've got a nice... Uh, there's a there's a particular, um, not so much a scene, but a part of a scene that sums up the film and the character and the zaniness of the plot and the, the corniness of it and the characters. It, it is everything from when the Jack and Wang try to escape from Thunder when he puffs up, which we talked about, right through to the wheelchair falling into the well, that section of that scene is 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 great for me because it does sum up everything what this film's about. But I am going to have to just go for the old fatal the fight scene. It's it's a, it's a remarkable scene. Well said. Movie legacy. Jeff Dog and another film with such rich content, but here we are, thirty five years later. Still no sequel. It's not the biggest surprise in the sense that it was a bomb at the box office, but still a beloved movie. I mean, in hindsight now, we can look back 35 years on. Most people love Big Trouble in Little China. I know it didn't do, as I say, it didn't do great at the time, but it is adored. It's, it's a cult film in many ways. 
uh, clearly beloved. And of course, there has always been talk of a sequel, uh, in, certainly in the last five years. I'm disappointed to hear that it's, if there is, it's not really going to include John Carpenter or old Jack Burton, but rather uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, and, and look, I'm not you know, a critic of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I can, I can enjoy a rock film, you know. Um, but this is the kind of film that if you are going to do a sequel, you want to see where these characters that you fallen in love with 35 years on are today. Um, that same mysticism. I don't want to be reintroduced to new characters. The first film did that perfectly. Will it happen? I actually think it probably will. When that will be, I'm not quite sure. But I think there's certainly enough buzz uh, and um, information floating online uh, that this is something that keeps being discussed that I think eventually something will materialise. Um, but just to follow on from that, there has actually been a video game uh, of Big Trouble in Little China. It, it did go by the same name. It was only released on the Spectrum, the Commodore 64, and the Amstrad CPC. Uh, there was also comic book appearances. It wasn't a dedicated Big Trouble in Little China comic. It was more of a, a crossover with Snake Plissken. So it, in spite of the fact that the film didn't do great at the box office, you can see just from the follow-up of the caliber of things that we've just spoken of, um, yeah, you know, comics, sequel ideas, video games, that there is something in this project that still lingers on 35 years later. What are your thoughts on Big Trouble in Little China? It seems to me like it's a it's an op like Ghostbusters, it's an opportunity for a franchise, but it wasn't taken in anywhere where it could could well have been. Um, would I like to see it now? I don't think I would. I think we've gone so far down the rabbit hole with what's deemed acceptable or culturally acceptable now that I don't think anybody would want to touch it with the barge pole because they'd be too worried about causing offence to this or that and the other. And I think if you were to look at it now with a the, with the, with the modern eye, you'd be able to pick all sorts of things out now and go, well, that's offensive or this is that and the other, which is ironic because, of course, the filmmakers were trying <laughs> to show a different culture at a time when that it just wasn't really accessible outside of foreign-made um, films and certainly not within mainstream cinema. Perhaps that could go some way to explain why it wasn't a success that we that it was expected to be. You know, when, as we've said already, the uh, production companies wanted it and based on what they felt the audience wanted, wanted the particular set of uh, uh, representation within cinema at the time. I think the scope there for something, but like I say, I just don't know whether I'd actually want to see it. The second that I hear the Rock's name mentioned, I just, I despair. Again, I'm not a uh, a, a, a massive, massive, uh, I, I'm not against the Rock doing his thing. But I had the somewhat misfortune to watch a film called Jungle Cruise with him in recently. Now it was a bearable, you know, romp through the through the the jungle. But I all I can imagine is just this being transplanted into that scenario, and it would just be so. What's the word I'm trying to think of? So run of the mill, and just so appealing to a mass audience, and just so lame 
And I, I, I really think that it would just suffer. It would be Dwayne the Rock Johnson playing Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah, Dwayne Dwayne the Rock Johnson playing J- Dwayne the Rock Johnson in a production by Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, mugging to the camera, pulling his faces, doing the sly wink because of yo oh, ha 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 the jokes about him, not the character. Do I really want to see that? <sighs> I don't think so, to be honest. I think what's upsetting is that John Carpenter, you know, he's so proud of this film as we heard earlier on. And he always expressed some desires to get involved with the sequel. It was something that he was certainly on board for. I'm not quite sure that's the case anymore. Um, I haven't heard any recent interviews or comments. But, you know, if he was to be involved in a project, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd want the old cast back. But we can only hope. Um, we, we got something relatively similar with Cobra Kai and, and the old cast returning. And we can see how with good writing and a, a, a good budget that you actually can actually do something special uh, and you know maybe you might not think it perfect but considering you know what you're trying to recreate i think you know we can always credit cobra kai for capturing something that we don't see too often and and maybe something similar might happen with a project like this um i doubt it but we as i say we can only hope but that does um jdog lead us to what i always consider to be one of the most important duties of, of your night is to give a big trouble in Little China, a mark out of 10. So the floor is yours. I think if you watch the film now, uh, you again, as I've said, you can watch it with a critical hat on and pick things out and uh, think, well, that's not culturally appropriate and all that kind of stuff. But if you just watch it going to do what we want to do when we watch these 80s films, is to just switch that little part of our brain off, that little cynical part of our brain, that um, suspension of, of disbelief, We want to watch something that we can just buy into and enjoy and go along with the story with. This is this is the film for you. It's got a bit of everything in it. And it's also got something that we don't ordinarily see in films in terms of the characters and the the, the protagonists and who who actually are the protagonists and things. It's got all the action that you'd want to watch. And you know what? The story, although it's got goes in, in a really mad, wild, fantastical direction is still quite, um, uh, you can follow it. Um, and that's testimony to the writing of the script, which is which is very tight considering everything that's going on. I would have to actually say, and maybe I'm dishing these out maybe a little bit too much lately, but when you watch it again, it, it is an excellent film. And so therefore I would I would award this and I will award this a 10. I am happy to hear you to hear you give it a ten because I share that sentiment, and um, and we do give you know tens out like candy, um, but it's testament to our love for this era of film, uh, and we anticipated that before we started this podcast. But I, I'm with you hundred percent. I sat and watched Big Trouble in Little China just last night, and I loved it as much as I did when I was a kid. It still captures the magic. So I am with you 100%, and, and as I say, I am glad uh, it, it reaches our 10. Um, but that does wrap uh, our second episode of our second season of The Sacred of Time. As always, um, we're, we're always grateful for everyone that's contributed. Uh, Jeff Dog, do you want to say any quick final words before we head off? Uh, again, just to our contributors, uh, all, of, all of our listeners, but the contributors on uh, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, 
uh, you you really do uh, make this worthwhile for us because I say it all the time, but we do this because we love talking about films and we, we just want to share that. The fact that you're willing to share in that with us is uh, it, it just it, it makes it it makes it worthwhile. So thank you. Uh, well said. But we will be back soon with another episode of the Circuit of Time '80s Movie Review Podcast. Um, if you did like the episode, you want to share your thoughts or just get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at Circuit of Time, and we're also on Instagram, Circuits of Time Eight Zero Circuits of Time Eighty. So do give us a check on those two. Uh, we've got all sorts of things going on there polls uh, trivia you name it we've got it all but uh, no we do thank you all and we'll see you next time on the second of time see you next time dirt bags